it was a pretty normal Passover, not too different than all the Passovers that the disciples had had through the years, and really not too different than the ones that they had shared with Jesus. They had the same normal Passover food. The camaraderie was kind of the same as normal as the, the friends came together in celebration. It was a little abnormal that Judas left in the middle of the meal, but not really a big deal. Jesus kind of changed up some of the things he said about the bread and when they passed the cup, but they really didn't understand that. And that wasn't too abnormal either because a lot of times he said things that they didn't quite understand. Then Jesus prayed with them, and that was normal too. But what they didn't realize, that this was the last time that he would ever pray with them together quite like this. They didn't realize that things were never going to be normal again. Have you ever looked in the rearview mirror and had that awareness? Maybe it was the last Christmas with someone that you dearly loved that was never going to be there again. Maybe it was the last time you nursed your last baby or the last time you drove your favorite car down that favorite stretch of road before the engine blew up. The last time is a very significant type of event. And it, it's like frozen in time in our minds because it will never happen again. Would you have acted differently if you knew when it was the last time? Would you have said a little more? Would you have hugged a little closer if you had known that it was the last time? What would you say if you knew that some tragedy would separate you from those you love? What would you pray if you knew that tonight would never, ever bring you back to anything normal again? You know, Jesus prayed on the cross and Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. But in the book of John, chapter 17, Jesus has left us with a full, beautiful prayer, unlike any other that we have recorded in the Bible. I hope that sometime soon you will get out your Bible and you will read that prayer all the way through and think about everything that he said there and how it applies to you today. Because when I look at this prayer, I think about that Jesus alone knew that this was the last time. He could look ahead. He could see the crucifixion. He could see the abandonment. He could see the persecution and the, the martyrdom 
of the men that were sitting around the table with him. He could see what was going to happen next. Those who were with him could not. To them, it seemed like just another normal event. But it was a sacred event. An intimate event. And things would never be normal again. The first thing that Jesus talks about in his prayer, when he talks to his father, is glory. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the glory of God. Maybe you think of the psalm that says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or maybe you visualize that pillar of fire at night leading the Israelites through the wilderness. I like to think about when Moses says to God, show me your glory. That's found in the book of Exodus. If you'll turn with me, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Moses asks for God to show him his glory. And when he writes down what happens, he tells nothing about what he saw. He describes nothing. What he puts down regarding the glory of God are the words that God speaks as he walks in front of Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty. If you had to condense that descriptor of glory into one word, what would you say? Merciful, gracious, forgiving. To me, there is only one word that qualifies, and that is grace. The glory of God is his grace, his amazing grace to all of us that he provided, especially through Jesus. As Jesus opens his prayer, in verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they may know you. The Father and the Son have been waiting for this moment since before Eden. The time when the glory of grace would be consummated when finally the, the mission would be accomplished. You know, we think of the cross as being a time of shame, a time of humility. But this is the moment they had been waiting for. It was the climax of the plan of redemption. It was the plan of redemption that made God knowable. And it was that knowable 
all-knowing, tempted in all ways like we are, God, who could provide the grace that was necessary to give us eternal life. And the time had come. Jesus presents this intimacy with his father since before the world began, how they had planned this, had come together, and now the time had come. The glory they shared before the world began, the idea that knowing Jesus was knowing the father and that they are glorified together through the gift of grace. Here Jesus shares this glorious moment with the Father, with the disciples, and with us. The next thing he talks about in his prayer are his disciples. Have you ever had someone ask you to take care of something very precious for them? Something irreplaceable. A number of years ago, we had some friends, my husband and I, who asked us if we would take in their three girls if something happened to them. They were getting ready to go on a trip. They had not pl- were not planning on the airplane crashing, but they thought, we have nothing in place if something were to happen to us. And they asked us if we would take those precious girls. I was completely blown away. I don't know if anything was more of an honor to me than at that moment, that they would want to trust those precious girls to me. We already loved that family. We loved those girls. But it made them so much dearer to know that there was a responsibility that linked us forever. To know how precious something is and be asked to keep and protect it is a treasured honor. And in this prayer, Jesus talks about the people that God has given him over and over. That is the language he uses over and over. He sees his his disciples as hand-chosen, that they were given to him by God. They were given to him. He has taught them. He has taught them to believe. He has made them his. In verse 10, he says, All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, we may sometimes say that everything we have is God's, and You know, we may feel that way, but I don't think any of us have ever said everything that God has is ours. Again, it comes back to that precious unity between the two, that they shared the love, the watch care for these disciples, that they were taking care of them, and that the grace had been manifested to these beloved children. It was an intimate moment between the Father and the son, and an intimate moment for those children. Jesus knows that he is leaving, and he asks his father for three things. The first thing that he asks, he says, keep them in your name. In the Greek, the word keep is the word terero, which means 
guard. Guard them in your name. What does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew culture, the name was the character. You know how when they were naming those Hebrew babies, the names were really important, how they were doing it. And here Jesus is asking his father to bless them and guard them with his character. Again, do you see the oneness? He's asking for that special presence. The second thing that he asks them, he says, keep them from the evil one. I'm in verse 15 now. Keep them from the evil one. It is still the word teraro. It means guard. Guard them from the evil one. Jesus knows that these men are going to be attacked by Satan the rest of their lives. He knows that they do not fit in with the world and that Satan is going to do everything he can to separate these men from God. And he pleads with his father, keep them from the evil one. He's giving them back into the father's care. And the third thing that he asks in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. Sanctify. That's not a word we use all the time. In the Bible, again, sanctify means to make holy, to set apart. He's asking for God to make them holy through his word. He's asking God to help these men let the word of God live through them. Not that they're just preachers. That's not enough. He's asking for the word of God to be lived out through these men. And then he ends with their mission in verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. His prayer is for them to be equipped to finish the job that Jesus had started. Jesus here displays the most beautiful intimacy with his disciples. And I think it's one of the most beautiful descriptions in history, in all of scripture. They too have shared a very special unity. The 13 of them together, they have worked together. He has watched them grow Jesus is treasuring these moments, these last precious normal moments with them. And he is praying for God to journey with them to the end. For years, I taught school more because of God's calling than because of my choice. And when I was called to pastor, there weren't a lot of things about teaching that I honestly missed because I still got to see those kids. But... The one thing that I did miss was graduation. Graduation is the culmination of the year. It is a time of celebration, of victory, and of sweet nostalgia. I loved graduation. And I kind of feel like Jesus is feeling that with his disciples right here, where he says that he has trained them, he has taught them, and that he is going to give them his work to finish. It is a very special moment between Jesus and his disciples. It is a celebration, even though it is 
a bittersweet occasion. Those who believe in me through their word. Have you read that? That's in verse 20 and 21. Because Jesus goes further. He goes further than those disciples and he begins talking about us, these disciples. And he says to them, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What does that oneness mean? Some suggest that it means unity in the church or unity between the churches. I have to say no. It goes deeper than that. Jesus is offering us, those who hear from what the disciples have done, he is offering us that same unity, that same oneness with the Father that he had, the same oneness that he had with his disciples. He's offering it to us. I am amazed that he would even consider it. But that's what he has called us to, his people. In verse 23, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Jesus was praying for us. And he gives us the goal. He gives us the goal. In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, that's us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Remember, the glory is the grace that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. As always, the goal has never changed since before the foundation of the world. It has always been for us to truly understand the glory of grace and for Jesus to get his children home. Every once in a while in the gospel, we get an intimate moment. It's kind of like when Peter looked across the courtyard right before he had, well, I guess it would have been at the time when he denied Jesus, and he looked across and he saw Jesus eye to eye. It was an intimate moment. I think this is Jesus' attempt through the ages to look eye to eye with us, saying, yes, you are mine, and I have a higher calling than what you know to be normal. If we look at the things that Jesus prayed for his disciples, I think we can see how they fit for us as well. Like them, we are living on the edge of normal. We have never been in a place like we are now. We are in totally different terrain. And whether you read the headlines or whether you read prophecy, it is pretty certain that more difficult days are ahead for us. We also need to understand how the glory of God is his grace, how it is for us and how we are to share it. We need for the Father to guard us with his character, to guard us from the evil one, and to put his word in us so that we live it out. 
And the only way it can happen is for us to become one with Jesus and the Father. It is the only way we can do the work he has called us to do. It is an honor. It is a challenge. And it is what Jesus said that he was praying for, for us. And I believe he is still praying that for us, a new normal. The story is told that during the Holocaust, many Jewish children were saved and hidden and kept safe in Catholic monasteries and convents. After the war was over, the Jewish societies came back to try to reclaim those children and to see if they had any living relatives. But there was a real big problem. When they had brought the children in, there were many, many children, and they did not keep good records, and they really could not tell which of the children were Jewish and which were not. They, they thought at first they could use the names because Jewish names are very important. But many of the other children also had the same names. There was no clear way to identify which of the children were Jewish and which were not. All had been reared in Christianity and they all seemed to be the same. Now it was a Jewish tradition that at the time mothers when they would take their babies up in the morning and when they would lay them down at night, they would pray a prayer. It is called the Shema. And they would pray it every day, morning and night, with their children. It's taken from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. And it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It is called the Shema. And mothers, as they put their babies to bed at night and cradled them in their arms, they would sing the Shema, reminding them who God was and their duty to him. As the Jewish societies were trying to figure out what to do to reunite these Jewish children with their families. One of the representatives of a Jewish organization had an idea. She remembered that mother's song. And she went into one of the dormitories and she began to sing. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. At first it was quiet. And then throughout the dormitory, there was the sound of little voices. Mama? Ma? Ma Mamushka? as the children responded in the memory of the prayer that had been ingrained in their souls. Again, the woman began singing, singing, 
But this time she did not sing by herself. The voices from the rooms came and joined her in the beautiful sound of the Shema. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The prayer that the mothers had sung was ingrained in those children. And it was the key to bringing the children home. The power of a prayer. In the book of John, Jesus has given us a beautiful prayer. And it is for us. It is our prayer. He mentions us specifically as tender as the mother's prayer. As close as that of an intimate friend are the words of Jesus as he speaks them to us. Perhaps now, at this abnormal time, perhaps now Jesus is speaking to us again with his prayer, calling us back to him, to a oneness that we have never known. Perhaps, like the children of the Holocaust, he wants to ingrain it in us so that we too will know who we are and who we belong to. We do not know what lies ahead, but the prayer that Jesus offered, specifically for you and for me too, is there to strengthen us with the privilege of knowing him to see us through whatever we face in normal or abnormal times with always the goal of getting us home. <laughs>